на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. This week is a bit of a more eclectic episode, with not just RPL action as usual at the weekend, but midweek we also saw the Cup of Russia semi-finals, and throughout the week the world's been gripped by the Super League controversy that's engulfed European football. To cover all that and more, I'm James Nichols, and I'm always joined by Richard Pike. Good evening, James. How are we all? I'm good, I'm good. I mean, as I mentioned at the back end of last week, we've also got the long-awaited return of, I mean, I think you were last on before the winter break, but Match TV's Misha Polinov. Misha, how have you been since you were last on the pod? Hi, thank you very good. Thanks for having me again. We had another high score of RPL action on Saturday and Sunday. And in just eight games, there was 27 goals scored. Now, some of the big results were as follows. Uh, Lokomotiv defeated Rostov 4-1. Dinamo travelled all the way down to Volgograd to defeat Rota 3-0. Krasnodar finally didn't lose for the first time in what feels like an age, as they held leader Zenit to a 2-2 draw. While Ruben Kazan defeated Ural 1-0 away from home to to leapfrog Siska into into fourth place. As the aforementioned Siska lost 2-1 away to Sochi. And then, rounding off the week, Spartak Moscow on the day of the club's 99th anniversary and their own birthday, they lost 3-0 to Ufa. Now, in lieu of some of the big, because due to the big events that took place at the weekend, we'll just quickly cover some of the big games in, in the order that they took place at the weekend. So, starting with Lokomotiv, I consulted personally the resident RFN local expert Ilya Sokolov about how they played at the weekend, and as you as you would expect, he gave a glowing report. He didn't believe that Loco necessarily played as well as in recent games, but really counter um, built upon and counteracted upon Rostov's mistakes, especially that early one from Sergei Pesyakov, which is a terrible, terrible touch. Now, Misha, did you did you catch the Lokomotiv Rostov game and how how was it for you? Um, well, um, from from two perspectives, uh, the first one is uh, the Lokomotiv's run by itself because. Uh, the uh, the cup games included. They now have the ten games in this year, and I mean official games, and they won all of them. So they are on an absolutely terrific run. I think that this is um, what uh, Marko Nikolic has done during the winter break. He finally had some time. Uh, he had all the players available, and so this is the result of his uh, of his work. Um, Many uh, football fans expected Lokomotiv uh, to be playing like that um, in uh, in summer, but he he didn't have enough time to um, to prepare his team. Now he had, and here is the result. And the second perspective is Rostov, uh, which is um, um, I don't know. It it seems like they are uh, on a kind of a crash right now because they have everything um, ruined right now. This is pretty common for Valery Karpin as a coach, actually. Because if we follow his career, we will find that uh, in uh, the second, in the, 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 um, the, the spring part of the, uh, of the 
championship is not his 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 best part. The uh, his teams yeah. always have some problems from moderate to serious in spring. And this is an example of serious problems, I think. And the mistakes are just the peak of an iceberg. Yeah, certainly. I remember going back to when Karpin was at Spartak and, and and last year in particular, Rostov again are just really falling downhill in this, in this second half of the season. But one thing with Loco, like you, you mentioned that this is Nico Nikolic's work and I'm... I've been so impressed by it. If you look at it with a little bit of context, in the tra- winter training camp, they had injuries to Anton Moranchuk, Smolov, Zilowish, um, Ignatiev, Zhivogliadov, Barinov, and I mean, two of them, three of them are now recovered from injury, thankfully. But because of that, he was forced to really change the team, bringing in Kamano, Lisakovic, Mukin, Kulikov into a, a much more of a first-team regular role. The, rost- the roster really had to change because of that. And he did change the tactics as well. And I don't think anybody honestly expected until watching their preseason games in the winter break that he would have changed it to a, a diamond formation in midfield with Kamano up top alongside Smolov or Adair or, or Lisakovic, whoever his partner is. Kamano has been the one concurrent in the lineup. He's been the leader at the top and He's been absolutely excellent in this new role, especially considering his output in the first half of the season. Now, after the game at the weekend, Nikolic mentioned that he uh, was not happy with the quality of the game, but was very much happy with the result. And that's something that's really a microcosm of Lo- of Lokomotiv this season. Um, a month ago, they were only 13th in the RPL in terms of the overall number of touches in the penalty area. And the worst out of the entirety of the top six for both uh, shots in general and shots from inside the penalty area. Now that's made up for in the individual quality of the players and the smart counter-attacking play. That incisive counter-attacking play that Loco have showed in the second half of the season is just an absolute joy to watch and it's really effective. Richard, what did you think of the game at the weekend? Was there any players in particular who stood out for you? Um, I think it was quite it was quite a good team performance. Um, I'm going to use yeah, James, a quite good team performance. Quite the usual suspects like some of the ones you've just mentioned there. I think having Barinoff back in the midfield has been a real plus for Lokomotiv in recent weeks. Um, the back two looked very very solid. Um, you know, Pablo has come in and again very very good. I thought. And yeah, like you say, Kamano has just been a player transformed. You know, this is the Kamano that two and a half years ago was being linked with the likes of Liverpool and Tottenham. You know, he's just a player transformed. I really like this new role that he's found Smoloff in the side, you know, in this deeper role, um, which he plays now in support to Kamano. You know, Gemma Letninoff has been a real discovery uh, for them. You know, I really, I'd almost forgotten about him until this um, this new formation was trialled. Um, and yeah, like I say, just a very good, efficient performance from Locomotive. Very, very solid. Um, they're just getting the job done. I didn't see the cup match midweek, but you know it looked like another comprehensive win. Looks like they were considerably better than Siska, and you know they look set for. Mm. You know they, they must be red hot favourites in the cup final. Um, we'll get onto that in a bit later, but um, they they really do look like they're in superb form at the moment. And yeah, Nikolic really is is proving his worth um, as as manager, and um, it's fantastic to see him 
throw throw in and show faith in these young players like Mukin, Kulikov, find a new role for Ivchinski at right right full right full back. But yeah, in terms of impressing, yeah, I have to say the the attacking players. I think um, Kamano in particular, Smolov has been really good. Um, you know, Barinov's return has been been a real positive for them. And yeah, you can tell. I think he's starting. I think Nikolic now probably arguably is the best manager in the league. I think he's he's been generally generally excellent for them. Um, and I just want to also yeah. on the game, I'll, I'll, I'll um, second Misha's thoughts as well on um, on Rostov. This is a big, big summer coming up for them because this is probably the second year on in a row where under Carpine they've fallen away in the spring. And um, I think it's going to be quite an interesting summer because a number of their players are getting a little bit older now, obviously. The, um, you know, Kosloff is quite old at right back, Alexei Kosloff. They've also no longer got Yedemenko. Um, Pavel Mamayev is getting quite old, so you'd think they're, they're going to probably need a few players in there. You know, Ali So, apart from that game against Zenit, he's not really done it. I saw they were, they were linked with a striker or two um, in the in the newspaper uh, gossip this week, so that could be quite interesting. So it's a big, big summer coming up for Rostov, and uh, it's disappointing once again how they've collapsed. Um, but yeah, good good win for Lokomotiv, and you know, be interesting. The barometer is is Zenit game in two weeks. I think it's going to be really interesting. That could be a chance to really lay down a mark for next season. You know, um, in terms yeah. of, you know, could they challenge Zenit next season? One strange part of what's emanated from after the local game is that uh, Vilkov, the the referee, has actually been dismissed from the RPL. Now, I don't think he was too bad in that game. Uh, Armin Gigovic's two yellow cards were deserved. Uh, Krakowiak did die for the penalty, and it was soft. But you've seen them given it's no, it's it by no means the worst VAR mistake of the weekend, and there was quite a few of them across the games. Uh, to quickly finish on on one in a separate game, Mahmat Kimki, um, the first goal really should not have stood, and uh, Nenikov should have been shown a red card. Uh, even Ilian fouled two in the build-up to that goal. And it was quite bizarre because he did give Nenakov a yellow card, but didn't scratch the goal off despite the foul. And there's been massive controversy on, on the game afterwards. And of course, it was Vasily Kazartsev who has been who was right in the centre of that uh, Spartak-Sochi debacle at the start of the season. So it's unfortunately another weekend without VAR mistakes. And we will get into a, a game later on regarding that, but just before so before um, Richard Dinamo also enjoyed an anniversary of the of the club. It was their ninety eighth anniversary on the day of their three 0 win against Rutter. Now, how how did they play? I guess it was a certain Arsene Zakarian back in the centre of things again for them, Richard. Yes, it certainly was uh, James. He was he once again. You know, it's just staggering how you know he only came into the team. Right at the back end of last, before the winter break, you know, two, three games before the winter break, he debuted from the bench there. And then since that Atmat game, first game back after the break, it's just been, he's just been getting better and better and more influential with Dinamo with every game. You know, in that Atmat game, he showed such composure and maturity for a 17 year old. Um, kid you know um who's only just broke into senior football he's played for russian 21s at the european championships and again you know he's just maturing all the time you know um he got an assist i think he he put in the ball from the corner for ivan Ordetz's um header for the second dinamo goal and he he's just been at the the head one at the head once again of this um 
of this Dinamo um, attack. And um, he had to play a slightly different role as well this this game because obviously Sebastian Szymanski got sent off against Dural. He was suspended, so Zakarian basically took his role on the side for that game. He'd been playing, you know, further up when Szymanski was in the side. But, you know, even in that this slightly deeper role, he still did an absolutely brilliant job. Um, and yeah, again, another good, comfortable win for Dinamo. As we've said on previous pods, Rotor, they they really look like they're going to be relegated, you know, alongside um, Tamboff. Um, they didn't offer that much of a threat going forward again, like against Siskar. But credit Dinamo, second half, they upped the tempo of the game and, um, mm-hmm. you know, got the win. Another good win. Um, they got Himke at home this week. And again, it's just about winning the game and trying to maintain pr- the, the pressure on the, the race for Europe. You know, um, Conference League qualification is still a possibility for them. It's going to be tough. You, you get the impression that they're probably going to have to win three games out of the remaining four to pretty much guarantee Europe could get in with two wins and a draw, but they're going to have to carry on winning it. But, I mean, the tide's playing well at the moment. There's a decent amount of confidence around. It was a better performance than against Ural. And, um, yeah, defence was mm. solid again. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting race. But, yeah, it's just wonderful what um, Sandro Schwartz has done with, with Arsene Zakarian, putting him into the team and how Zakarian has blossomed um, into this terrific young talent is is fantastic. And um, you, you do get the impression, as we've been saying, how, how, you know, with, with his performances at Russia on the 21s at the recent Euros, whether he'll be catching some glances about this time next season from... Um, Maybe from abroad, who knows? But um, yeah, fantastic to see um, Schwartz's faith in Zakayan being um, rewarded. Yeah, certainly. It was the he he was the one big miss in that cup loss to Krilia. Zakayan didn't play a single minute. Uh, as a quick side note, as a last word on Dinamo, Daniel Fumin scored his scored a penalty after Sergei Pashivliuk was fouled in the box. And that's actually 15 penalties converted out of 15 penalties now for Fermin in his in his entire entire career. But Misha, if we do move on to the next game, which was Krasnodar Zenit. Now that that game last season and I believe the season before as well actually sealed the title for Zenit. And and the one last year was a pulsating 4-2 win for Zenit. I think in the end it was a brilliant match of football. How did you see the how how what was your take on the Krasnodar Zenit game? At the weekend, Misha. Um, first of all, I have to say that we we have to consider that uh, Krasnodar has just uh, um, uh, substituted the head coach, and it's always kind of a boost for the team. Uh, we know it's it's very hard uh, always to say how how long it's going to last, but uh, it usually has an impact, and I think that uh, the um, in. Uh, the inevitable uh, substitution of the coach. Uh, th- I think that the, the Krasnodar made it at the very right point. We can argue that if uh, Goncherianka took the job too early, maybe maybe he needed some uh, time to relax, to uh, uh, to have some time off, uh, and so on. But uh, if we talk about this game. I think that the emotions is what Krasnodar needed most of all because they lost um, the uh, the most significant the, the very uh, the very Krasnodarish stuff that they had previous years and um, to restore them they did need that kind of um, of a shake 
And they, they did get it. And I'm very happy for Alexei Ionov, for example, because uh, there were too many questions about his um, well, about his ability to um, to play on the high level. He proved that he still has it. Um, we don't know when he's going to shine uh, that much next time, but still, uh, he he was very good at uh, the game. At this game, it was something special for him because he was playing against his previous uh, his previous club, the club that didn't probably didn't value him uh, as much as he wanted. Um, but, you know, I think that this game once again showed that Zenit is vulnerable, that um, they do not have that... Um, their, um, the, they do not lead uh, as strongly as they did, for example, uh, the end of the previous season. Um, yeah, their defense uh, is uh, well; it's not that solid. Sometimes they make mistakes, maybe too uh, too much, and the um, uh, the reaction of the uh, of the coach here is pretty questionable to me, because when okay they saved the game, they they turned it back, they 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 draw it. I think it's uh, it's a very good result. Although we can argue if there was an offside or not when Mustafi scored, but still. Uh, I think that uh, with the, with the um, uh, game against Lokomotiv coming with this absolutely fantastic form of Lokomotiv, I think that Zenit is... Well, they're not in trouble because they have six points uh, margin, but Krasnodar showed that even a team in not their best conditions can, uh, can cause uh, big problems for Zenit. And previously solid... Defense did not look like that at all. Incredible. I think like I think this season in, as a whole has showed that Krasnodar are all somewhat more vulnerable than they have been in in recent in, in at least the last two years. Yeah. But I thought the the way they got back into the game, the way that Krasnodar let them back into it, was a little bit disappointing. You had the the mix up between Safanov and Kayo, which. You see all the time from Kayo, to be honest. I think he's a vastly overrated defender and an absolutely mistake prone. And then, but Krasnodar did step up for a lot of the game. They did play better, but it was a lot of it was individual quality. And I think you could clearly see the the bounce that they've got from the changing of manager, just the, the whole mood seemed to be slightly lifted. They just looked a little bit more confident, but then they did go and shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, I, I agree. I thought Zenit were vulnerable in this game. I thought Yaroslav Rakitsky had, a, had probably one of the worst games I've seen him have for Zenit so far. He's so good at progressing the ball up the field, uh, both short and long into the channels. And he, he, he was awful. He, he couldn't pass five yards and, and defensively, he was all over the place. Ionov, I think he was offside for the first one, but he's still totally left, totally free, running off the back of the defender's shoulder, and neither centre-back picks him up. It's really uncharacteristic of Zenit's play so in the last two years. But I think my biggest take from this is just how frustrating VAR has been. Ionov was offside, um, but it wasn't given. Uh, no VAR check was implemented. In the old days, that would have just been level, continue. And then afterwards, Mostovoy is totally free for the winner in the box. But in the build-up, Magomed Shapi Sulemanov is fouled. 
by Kuzyaev, and then Mostafoy himself is offside in a very similar position, in a very similar way to the last one. This time VAR was instigated, but he was still not given offside. I mean, you can see he is offside, and if my view, it's level, it's in the old style. But in some games, you've got this one where it's not given, and it's quite clearly is. It's it's a mistake. But then in other games, you have them lining up the little lines across the pit. It just does. There's no consistency, and this is what you were promised with VAR. So, Misha, as a, as a last word, what what do you think about VAR in general? Is it is it something that needs to be stuck with? I mean, they're going to regardless, I suppose. Um, well, I, I'm a VR believer, actually. I think that if it works properly, it might be, um, well, not maybe not the game changer, but it, it might uh, fulfill its, uh, its destiny, what it's, what it's supposed to be. Uh, if we talk about Russian uh, implementation of VR, I think we have too many questions about it. Too many questions because okay, we have uh, we we watch uh, every every weekend how it's done in in different European countries. It's done differently. Uh, okay, the approach might be different, but um, when they uh, as as you have said, when uh, when one uh, episode is being under the uh, VAR and the and the same episode is not. This is that raises questions. We do have a lot, a lot of problems with with the referees. This is one of the most significant problems in our in our league, and uh, our referees are well. I don't, I I don't want to be harsh, but I think that uh, <laughs> this is probably one of the weakest uh, generation of the of the referees, yeah. and. So uh, the the episode the the, uh, the situation with uh, Vilkov and his suspension that's one more episode I I don't know I don't have an explanation uh, to that you mentioned uh, the uh, the Sochi Spartak debacle in the first uh, the first match day uh, but things like that can happen uh, every every day in our league and nobody. Nobody can say that we have uh, we've got the lesson from from that. I don't know. I don't know how it works. Nobody explains that. And the explanations that we hear are not uh, are not sustainable and not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. That's that's the most depressing thing about it. Is you hear you either don't hear anything like the Vilkov situation. Yes, he got the decision slightly wrong, but it's nothing really particularly galling. Or particularly massively wrong, but and it doesn't really have much. It, it wasn't like the the ones earlier on in the season for for various clubs and against various clubs, and he's been suspended from the RPL. Oh well, not suspended. Sorry, um, demoted. And nobody's explained why. Like not even a single word. They've just said right, this has happened. Yeah, earlier on in the season they were going like out of their way to explain what happened with Kazartsev in, in the Spartak case, and it really muddied the waters. And I think it's, it's, it's opening a can of worms where the RFU cannot afford to get drawn into. Mike, uh, Mike what do you think? If we talk about uh, Vilkov, okay, he made mistakes, but it's not for the first time. Why now? 
the, true. Yeah. The uh, the head of our referees, I don't know how to say it in English, Ashot Khachaturians, uh, he was very emotional. He said that this referee will never referee again uh, while I'm uh, the head of the uh, of the referee uh, of the referees. I I I don't like that. That that that's not. It doesn't sound uh, okay to me. What does it mean? Uh, it's it looks like it's something personal. Why do you yeah. uh, um, why do you throw the the referee out right now? Why didn't you do that before? You had um, you had the opportunity. If we go back to uh, to the Krasnodar Rubin game, I suppose it was in in autumn. He made a much more serious mistakes when the VIR protocol had been broken, and it was a pretext to. Um, to rematch the game. No, no sanctions followed. Well, he was suspended for a couple of weeks, that's all. But now, I don't know, it, it's too personal to me, and so that's, mm-hmm. I don't like it. it. It just seems very bizarre. I mean, the timing is odd. It, they could have just left it until the end of the season in, in literally four games' time and just kind of kept him to the back state, to the background, being a fourth official or even a VAR a referee, not in the highlights, right in the limelight, sorry, and then just done it behind the scenes, which they've done before. It's it, and then if it is an accumulation of errors, well, how many other referees have had a sheer amount of accumulation of even worse errors this season? I mean, in, in recent years in general, I mean, Lapochkin himself has been suspended by UEFA for something completely unrelated to refereeing decisions, as we mentioned last week. That is, it was a, a, a potent, uh, he was approached about match fixing. But he himself, I remember three or four years ago, made some serious balls ups in the, in the Spartak title race and the way to them winning the league that year. And nothing came of it because Sartsev at the start of the season, he, he, he failed a polygraph test and he's still refereeing in the RPL. It's really inconsistent and quite bizarre. And it just, it really just gives you that the indication that the referees aren't good enough. And even more worryingly, those in charge of the referees also aren't good enough in the league right now. And it's one of the biggest issues plaguing the league week in, week out. No wonder fans are so frustrated with it. But if we do move on to Sochi Siska, and guess what, ironically, there was also a a VAR decision in that one. But this time it did look like it went entirely the right way when uh, Nair Tignizian handballed in the box. And it was a clear and obvious handball. Picked up by the video assistant referee that was given. And of course, Christian Naboa converted the penalty. Richards, how good was Sochi on the day? Were you quite impressed by them? And it was a very good result. I was very impressed with them, James, yes. And I'll tell you something now, I think that's a good win for them because I was a little bit worried about Sochi because obviously they lost against Rubin and Lokomotiv looked like they beat them pretty easily in the cup. And I was beginning to wonder because obviously they play this high press, this Gagan pressing, quick transition through the lines, football under Vladimir Fedotov. And I was beginning to wonder, because Sochi have got a good squad, but they've also got an old squad. You know, a lot of those players, you know, Yusupov is 32, Nabor is 35, 36. I was beginning to wonder, is, is a long season now beginning to catch up with them? You know, because obviously, you know, that kind of style of football that, you, that they play, 
does require you to have a lot of legs and you know it requires you to have a good level of stamina and I was beginning to wonder whether a long season was finally beginning to catch up with them with some of their recent results but um what a way for um for Fedotov and um, his team to um you know put my put my suspicions to rest I thought they were absolutely brilliant I thought you know they they really you know they played well and fully deserved their win against Siska um they outplayed them and back back to the kind of football that they were playing you know right just after the winter break um, I remember watching them against Arsenal Tula and they were they absolutely tore them apart in between the lines in the transition play. Um, they had an absolutely shocking miss early, early doors in that game. I've forgotten the player involved who did miss that early chance, but it, it really was a shocker. But um, yeah, they, they, they're so good in the transition from midfield to attack, Sochi. All it takes sometimes for them is a couple of passes and they're in straight away. And um, yeah, I was, I was yeah. very, very impressed with the performance. Um, back to the Sochi of just before the winter break and just after the winter break. I remember them, you know, they beaten Dinamo and Spartak, I think, in consecutive home games. They were really good in both those matches. And, um, yeah, this was another good performance from them. Um, outplayed Siskar, who one has to say now, um, are suddenly now embroiled in a huge fight. You know, it's looking like Lokomotiv looking likely now to finish second. And suddenly now it's a real scrap for those final three European slots, isn't it? And, um, you know, Sochi still just about staying in the race. I think it's now, it's basically now Lokomotiv and Zenit, I think, are going to be a top two. And I think the other three spots, it's it's three from five with Sochi, Dinamo, Rubin, Siska and Spartak, I think, for those positions. So... But yeah, it's going, to, it's going to be really interesting now, and uh, maybe that, maybe even in the context of what we were discussing earlier on, when we were, when you know, obviously Gontrenko left Siskar, maybe that was Fedotov giving a little, a little nudge to the top clubs in Russia, saying, you know, I'm, I'm still here, guys, you know, and I thought, you know, because he, <laughs> he's done an absolutely remarkable job um, at um, at Sochi, but but yeah, deserved win from them, great performance, and you know, players like Naboa still superb, even at 35, 36. You know, I honestly thought when he left Zanit that he'd slowly start to drop Naboa, but he's been absolutely brilliant this season. And um, at the back, they're nice and solid at the back defensively. And um, yeah, just another very good performance from them. Yeah, very, very good. I think it was Kirill Zaika who missed that that chance. And if anyone hasn't seen it yet, it really is for me the miss of the season. He's it's he's, it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> he's he's three yards out from Siska's goal with Akinfeev stranded across the other side of the penalty area, and he skies it high and wide, completely unmarked in about ten yards of room. I could not believe it at the time. I honestly thought it was Zabalotny on the end of it with his record or a day. But we're going to move on now to what was a lot of Zenit fans, well, most probably one of their most enjoyable moments of the season, of course. But when it comes to Zenit this season, it's been they win, number one in the wish list, and then number two, right behind that, is Spartak get tanked. And Spartak did get tanked off Ufa at home on the 99th anniversary of the club. Now, it was an absolute disaster from Spartak from front to back. It was on the club's birthday, like I mentioned, and they have now not defeated Ufa in two and a half years. Ufa really are the specialists of going to Spartak and just getting a result. Misha, how bad was Spartak on the day? And how, it, the, the season's just unravelling before our eyes. This is a very bad idea to play on, uh, on the birthday of a club. Uh, I don't like it at all. It always usually uh, it, it's usually um, uh, ends badly, and this is one of one of the, those examples. Uh, do you remember how many talks there have been before the uh, 
the the uh, the Premier League uh, kicks off this season uh, in summer about two uh, so-called farm clubs for Spartak Moscow, Himki and Ufa. Uh, okay, Spadak uh, defeated Himke, that's, uh, that's understandable, but if we talk about Ufa, they have only one point out of six, so the farm club wins uh, the, uh, during the season. That's, that's insane, but, um, you know, this, uh, this, this calamity, I think, has uh, pretty deep roots, because um, we were too much, um, you know, uh, fascinated by Spadak at the um, at the beginning of the second part of the uh, of the season, but uh, the game against Lokomotiv showed that Spartak wasn't that good. Okay, they scored five against Ural, they scored six against Krasnodar, but those teams did have very very deep problems, and Spadak's uh, attack was really good. But if we talk about the ability to uh, to react, to rebuild during the game, this is not about Spartak Moscow today. And they were, uh, and their defeat against Ufa, it's uh, flabbergasting, but I think it's absolutely earned by Ufa. They played better. They found the, uh, the weak spots and they pressed on them and they... Um, and they, they won. I think this is one of the victories that uh, happened not only on the pitch but uh, before the game at the at the table, uh, the uh, the preparation desk or something at the at the, at the head coach desk. It's one <laughs> of those examples. Yeah, I think Spartak this season really are bullies of the small clubs. If you look at their records, they have defeated local ones and defeated Dinamo once, but every single other game against anybody else in the top five, they haven't won. And it really stretches that defence. That defence is just absolutely shocking at times. Ufa tore them apart. Now, I I will take a second on Ufa because they obviously won last weekend uh, and we were hesitant to give them too much credit in spite of it being a very good performance and victory, just because Stukalov had only been in the job for two or three days, absolute maximum. He'd only taken one and a half training sessions with, by his own own admission. So we didn't really want to get too overexcited about it. But I think Sunday proved that you can. Shamil Gazizov must have been the happiest man in Moscow during the entirety of that 90 minutes, considering what's went on with the other part of the season. But in the end... Samu Zizou is sent off. Now he's suspended for the Siska derby. And they had youngster Dmitry Markitasov, who's a quite a talented but raw young attacking midfielder, playing at centre-back. So what the hell was Tedesco doing? And for the entirety of the second half, Ufa were just cutting through them like a knife through butter with some really brilliantly executed counter-attacks. And they looked, they, they were absolutely flying. Even aside from that, early the three goals, early on they hit the post, and Common Andrich up front had, an, had a hat-trick of really bad misses. If it wasn't for those misses and the wrong side of a post, imagine discussing Ufa defeating Spartak 7-0 after the season that they've had. Obviously, that's a hypothetical, it didn't happen, but it just goes to show how much better Ufa were on the day. They were genuinely brilliant. Richard, any thoughts on Spartak Ufa? Yeah, just to um, just to say, um, uh, 
about Misha's reference to um, play on your birthday, uh, the most infamous example of that is on Real Madrid's 100th birthday in 2002, they played the final of the Spanish Cup against Deportivo and they were playing it at their own Santiago Bernabeu Stadium. They lost to Deportivo at home in front of their own fans on their 100th birthday. So that's probably the worst worst um, ever example of letting your fans down on your big day out. But uh, <laughs> I'm special on a centenary as well. So, yeah. Uh, but on to um, the Spartak thing. Um, yeah, I'm beginning to wonder if, because I've seen this this season in other leagues, like, for example, in, in Germany, I remember when there was all the speculation about the co- uh, about in Borussia Mönchengladbach with Marco Rosa. Now, he was obviously being linked with the Dortmund, the Borussia Dortmund job, and eventually he will be the Dortmund coach next season. But I remember when the, all those links with Rosa and all that speculation with Rosa to Dortmund in the press, I was wondering that affected Mönchengladbach. There was a lot of poor results from them, and it was only when it was officially confirmed and it was like, right, both parties were like, right, this is happening next season, where Gladbach started to get better results. Now, I'm beginning to wonder whether... Spartak really need to start now pressing Tedesco for an answer on his future. Is it is it a definite? Are you staying or are you going? Because it's it's such a shame to see it unravel like this. Because you know, we were only it was only two three weeks ago where we were talking about you know are Spartak just about still in with a chance? You know are, are they still going to push it right to the very end this title challenge? And the last two games have just seen it against Lokomotiv and even more worryingly now with this result against Ufa, it really fall off a cliff and it is a shame. Um, uh, full credit to Ufa, though. Uh, I've not seen the match, but um, full credit to them for two, these two good wins. And they're putting themselves into a good position for those relegation playoffs now, getting themselves into some good form. But yeah, I, th- I think Spartak really do now need to press Tedesco for an absolute final decision on this because they need to get talking to potential replacements ASAP. And it's just the, the players must know as well, you know, what is going on with them. You know, they need to know an answer because it must affect players, not just... Uh, fans and everybody else, it, 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 I think really there needs to be an answer for this now um, because, you know, the longer it drags on, the fact I fear it's only going to get, get worse, really. Yeah, I think it will get, will get worse as well. Um, it's funny that we all mentioned the birthday because Spartak have got a weird history of playing on on their birthday on the 18th of April. On the 50th birthday, they drew with Dino Tbilisi in the Vishaya Liga but I know, and they didn't win, of course. It's, that's also a little bit of a pattern. Um, by no means on its own then, a disastrous result. Of course, Dino Tbilisi were far more successful in the 1970s than they are now. But that's even then with the team of like Andreev and Kasainov and in particular Nikita Simonyan in there, and they still didn't win. So if they didn't win then, then they're definitely not going to win now with the lineup they've got compared. Uh, Misha, as one last word on Spartak, Richard mentioned there the uh, Tedesco's future. What do you think? Uh, there's been a lot of people who are suggesting online, all Spartak fans, of course, uh, that they think that Tedesco might actually stay at the end of the season in, in, in like a little bit of a shock opinion. What what do you think? Do you think he's, he's definitely off or not? Well, there has been uh, kind of a conspiracy theory about, uh, about Tedesco. I think, well, I hope this is uh, this is a solved uh, question. I, I hope that he uh, he leaves not because I don't like him, but if this is a kind of a of a of a game they are playing with uh, um, when when they um, announce that he's leaving, then 
uh, he shows some good results and so, and, and so he stays and this was uh, done just to relax the team uh, to put some uh, some weight off their shoulder no I don't believe it I don't believe it they do Spartak does need a change they need uh, a structural change I'm afraid because yeah. Not the question is not only with the head coach. the The question is with the uh, with the sports management, with the sports director, with the with what way of um, development do, do they choose? Which path do they choose? They have a lot of young players. Are they good enough? I think that example of uh, Maslov showed that well, talented, uh, talented, probably talented players are not ready yet for uh, for big uh, international matches and Spartak Moscow wants to play in the Champions League are they ready to um, to spend much money uh, how much who is going to to manage the team next year is it going to be Fonseca this is one way of um, one style uh, of uh, playing and managing the club the Zerbi it's the other where are they moving we don't know they have they have uh, some players uh, on loan. For example, as Moses, he probably well, he most definitely is going to leave in summer. But they uh, they bought some players uh, this winter. What is going to happen to them when the new coach arrives? And probably he doesn't like him. Maybe they, maybe he just does not consider them to be uh, the the starting eleven. What's going to happen? There are too many questions to me, and I think that nobody can answer them, even uh, Leonid Fidun and anybody in the club, because they don't know what's going to happen uh, next. This is this is my takeaway. I, I, I'm I don't want to say that I know some insight. It just seems to me like that it's something like that. Yeah, it's it's once again quite a monumental mess over at Spartak. And even as a Spartak fan myself, I don't think I'd have it any other way right now. There's something bizarrely warming and soothing in Spartak being a mess. <laughs> just like the... the the, the, the length of time that each of their recent sporting directors have actually endured at the club is a joke. The Everything going on behind the scenes and who is influencing Fadoon where and, and why is there external advisors who are with Fadoon in the, in the executive boxes at every match who are not on a payroll at the club officially and what's their role and who's in charge? It, like you say, Misha, they just need an entire structural rebuild. Would it's it's frustrating, but any last words on on Spartak Ufa before we move on to the semi-finals, Misha? Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it briefly. Uh, I can totally understand the fixation on the 100 years anniversary. It would be absolutely normal for anybody. So why don't you start uh, building some? Um, something well in advance for example three years prior to to that date when you if you want to win something huge if you want to celebrate it like uh, no one has ever done in russia why don't you start building a little bit before because now uh, next year is going to be uh, that uh, 100 years uh, anniversary and what does spider have now to win anything next year not much. That says uh, a lot to me. I think that the the changes in Spartak must uh, start uh, 
in the in the managerial team in uh, in the somewhere in the sports directing office and something like that. Yeah, it's a little bit ironic that, I mean, Spartak have got a huge history, and to be fair to those at the club, they hold that history with a huge amount of respect. Um, speaking to people at the lower echelons of the club who I know personally and who I've met uh, professionally, you can see that all who work for the club really do respect that history in the highest regard. They're one of the only clubs I can think of who have a statue on the inside of the stadium right next to the pitch. The four-star Eaton brothers are there. Their presence is is huge in the history of Spartak and their presence is, is literal in that the four men are on the bench on the side of the pitch as they should have, as they used to be and as they will be for eternity. It's, it's a wonderful homage to them, but I can't help but feel that Nikolai Staritsyn in particular, who spent time in the Gulag for this club, who created them from nothing, created the sporting society from very little compared to, where the others were created in the 1920s would be highly disappointed in Spartak's direction, in how they are being run as a club from the very top to the bottom. It's it's a shame, actually, that they both... It's, it's this weird juxtaposition, and it's almost oxymoronic in its juxtaposition, that they both have this history in such high regard but are seemingly doing very little about trying to create any more because, look, Spartak is an institution. It's the most high-supported club in the country. And what are they most famous for right now? It's it's They're being made a mockery of. And it's not good enough. It's simply not good enough from Lena Fadun. But if we will move on to, to the semi-finals, the Cup of Russia semi-finals, which took place on Wednesday afternoon, uh, we'll start off with the Moscow derby, in which Lokomotiv defeated Siska 3-0 at the RGD Arena. Misha, you caught that game. Were you impressed by Loco again with a, another strong win against a big rival? Well, I was in a kind of a way, but this uh, is that uh, occasion, uh, occasion when you open the, the newspaper and you see the result and you look at the stats um, and you, you draw a picture, but it's wrong. Uh, it was not that uh, that that huge um, difference. CSK played uh, played well. Of course, they, they didn't play well enough, maybe to win. But Loka was extremely um, lucky it, at the uh, at all, all the three goals that they scored. Uh, it doesn't mean that I, I don't want to underestimate their. Um, the abilities to um, to beat almost anybody in the in the Russian league right now, but that was not so. Uh, it was well, you you had to watch the game uh, and not be uh, carried away with the with the with the result. But still, mm-hmm. uh, when a team is uh, well prepared, when they uh, um, when they have no physical problems, when they have. Um, a lot of players uh, from the bench that uh, transfer uh, the game and etc uh, etc. Et Sometimes you are lucky, and the 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 moments that can go either way uh, when you are good enough, they go your way. That's uh, quite common in football, and so I think that it, it shouldn't be. Um, um, 
it shouldn't it shouldn't uh, shouldn't be questionable. They were better than CSK, maybe not that much. Three three zero is quite a quite a huge difference, but uh, on the pitch it was not that 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 big. I wanted to find something from Olic actually. I wanted to see what uh, could he bring uh, to CSK now. And hmm. I think that it's still something to look for. I don't, I, I don't believe that he can um, change the course of, of uh, things at CSK at the moment. Uh, and hence the, the lack of chances, chances against uh, Lokomotiv at, uh, that evening. Yeah. It, it very much seems like they are bereft of the same issues that Goncharenka was also plagued by. Siska looked like, like you mentioned earlier that Goncharenka provided somewhat of a managerial bounce in Krasnodar. Stukalov certainly is a oofer, even if all he's doing is just building confidence and momentum in his players. Siska look exactly the same. The lineups are very, very similar. I mean, the approach play is incredibly similar. The ev- Everything is just, it's like as if it, it continued on as it was but with a different man at the helm. And I must admit, we all, in our in, in previous podcasts, Misha, we were slightly questionable of the appointment just because he is a club legend. And yes, he's got experience as an assistant at uh, in the Croatian national team, but it just doesn't really make sense why he's been hired, aside from the fact that he is a club legend and he was brilliant for Cisco when he was there. But the only real changes has been that Chagoyev is fit for the first time in what feels like forever, and Mario Fernandez is out injured. But what I liked about Lokomotiv is, is I read an, an analysis from a Lokomotiv fan, Ilya Vasilyev, and he was very balanced and very measured, uh, which was nice to see. But he mentioned that they had a huge slice of luck, of course, which they definitely have. I agree with that, Misha, entirely. But he liked their killer instinct. They don't create much. They don't dominate much. They're usually on the back foot for a lot of games. But their killer instinct in front of goal and the solidity at the back is is really what Nikolic has brought to the team. Richard, have you got any last words on, on the on the Moscow Derby in the Cup midweek? Just more on um more on the appointment of Olic and just just to um come on what you've been saying there James I actually watched them against I didn't see both the cup matches but I did see the um, obviously I watched the Sochi Siskar game and I was thinking pretty much similar to what you were you were just saying there when I was watching that game I was thinking to myself has anything actually really changed that much here from three four weeks ago when Goncharenko was in charge it was quite you know it was a bit interesting and also I think it was important to remember that okay Olic got three wins from his opening three games but you also have to remember those one was against Arsenal, two in the Cup, who've had a poor season. They're in the bottom four. And the other two were against Tamboff and Rotor, the two sides who are pretty likely to get relegated. And in the Tamboff game, both the winning goals were penalties. So, yeah, it's not been a brilliant start for Mollich so far. Um, been okay in terms of results, but, yeah, in terms of performances, I haven't seen, like you say, the spark from Stukalov. I haven't, from Stukalov going to Ufa, I haven't seen that at... at um, at Siska. So it will be interesting. And I do think it is quite interesting too how Olic's contract, I was checking on Transfermarkt the other day, Olic's contract is only till the end of next season. So it does make you wonder whether Siska, you know, whilst they're happy to give him a chance, 
it's also very much a, a trial thing. You know, I think he's going to have to hit the ground running early next season, I think. So it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens. This guy's this guy got a real fascinating crossroads because, you know, they've still got a few older players in the team, the defensive issues at the moment with a few players out injured. And then, you know, there's the future of Rondon. Have they got a buy option with the loan? I don't really know. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting summer for Olic and Siska, I think. Yeah, certainly. But it was a good good result of local when they are in in the cup final again, which has become a little bit of a, a love letter for Lokomotiv in, in recent years. Now, Lokomotiv's opponents are Finnair sides, Krylia Sovietov, who continued their unbelievably strong form this season. The match itself in, in Glozny was a 0-0 draw with Akmat, went to penalties, and Krylia then prevailed 4-1 on penalties. And I must admit, I'm a little bit, not disappointed, but I feel a little bit sorry for Krylia in, in the aftermath of how it's being covered in the media because a lot of the focus, is, well, on social media in particularly, a lot of the focus has been on on Akmat's penalties in in Berisha's awful pass back to, to Lomayev. And then in particular, a, a lot has been on um, on Gudiev's goalkeeping for Ivan Sergeyev's penalty. But I think a lot of that is unfortunately taken away from just how good Krilia have been, not only in the Finnair L this season, but against top to mid-tier RPL sides in in the Cup of Russia. And before we started recording, Misha, you mentioned that you particularly wanted to talk about Krilia in in general. So, Misha, how, how have you seen Krilia's season coming along and how impressed are you with, with how they've responded from relegation? Well, I am. Um, I am. Um... That this is this is really huge, and I hope that they are not going blast this chance again because um, uh, this is a story that is very familiar to the uh, to the Kriliasada fans because uh, when things go south, when they relegate, uh, when they are relegated, they uh, try to rebuild, and mm, they make a very uh, very beautiful team. They play. Um, very offensively, they do have very good players. For example, you, uh, the, the, one of the previous examples was when Andrei Tikhonov was the head coach, and when they were playing um, sh- uh, quick short pass uh, at the uh, at the fan uh, FNL, and when they got promoted to the Premier League, they just totally changed, absolutely, and they did not survive. This time. I hope that they have a chance not to um, give up on their um, strongest, uh, strongest uh, um, uh, on their uh, on what they do the best because they do have a coach mm-hmm. who is uh, very good at working with uh, with the young players. Um, Asinkin uh, worked in Chertanova, and there are some. This is one of the best academies in Russia at the moment. Yeah, probably one of the three best, maybe. And there are a lot of players who um, who were who grew up in Chertanova. He knows them very well. He um, he trusts them. They trust him, and they feel that they can do huge things they are doing them right now they have they have a lot of young players uh, at the at the uh, at starting 11 these well for example zinkovsky is still 
well, maybe he's not a youngster, maybe he's not a teenager, but uh, he's far from uh, from being a veteran. So he has all his career ahead. Uh, Ivan Sergeyev is. Uh, um, Extremely good. He is very close to break the the goal scoring record for the uh, for the FNL. And the, the I like I like really but this happens very often when they play in the lower league. The question is, what's happening to them when they qualify to the uh, to the Premier League? What is going to happen this time? And I hope that this time is going to be different. By the way, uh, on the way to the on the road to the final, they defeated three. Uh, Premier League teams, Himki, which were very good under Cherevchenko. They beat Dynamo Moscow, uh, we've talked about about them, and now they beat Ahmad, who are playing very well. They played at home. Um, so this is the proof that uh, Krinia can play against different teams and they are equally successful against uh, almost, well, any opposition in Premier League so far. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think I've been very, very impressed by them, and it would be remiss of me. Um, and David, our RFN David, would probably have a go at me if I didn't say that Sergeyev has actually now broken the the record of goals in the, in the Finnael, which is just an unbelievable achievement of how many it is. But for Karelia, this is they've they've never won the Russian Cup. They never won the Soviet Cup in their previous guises. The last time they got through to the final was in. 2004, when they lost against uh, Terek, and Terek, and, and Terek scored a 92nd winner on the day in the Lokomotiv Stadium in, in, in that year, and and they've only been at the final two times before that, both as uh, Zenit Kubishev in the 50s, and they lost to Dinamo, and then as uh, uh, Krulia Sovietov Kubishev, which is another former guys in 1964, and they lost to Dinamo Kiev in the final. So they've never won it. It would be brilliant for them and their fans, their passionate fan base down in the South, which I mean, you, you hear a cliche about football that there, there are hotbeds and it's a cliche because it's true and and down in, in the South Samara Volga region that is a true hotbed of football. The people, the, Their attendances at any level they're at are unbelievable. Their attendances in 2009-10 when they were in the old Metalurg Stadium, which was by no means the biggest in the league at, at all at the time. Uh, they were under a transfer embargo. They had huge debts and were actually almost removed from the league. It was the biggest attendance in, in the league that season in the entirety of Russia. These are real passionate fans, and it's so good to see them doing it on the back of Chitanova's success. It's a shame for Chitanova, but they, they will regroup. They will get their next group of academy kids through. They'll probably get promoted again. They will be fine, but to see all of these players follow Osyink and, and play the way they have is just a breath of fresh air. And they're currently probably better than actually a lot of the teams in the bottom end of the RPL. I, I really can't wax lyrically enough about how strong Krillia have been this season. And on that, because Krillia are off in L side and because the final does take place in Nizhny. Uh, Richard, do you have any last words on, on the Akhmat Krulia game in particular? And, and I believe you want to go through some of the latest in the Fenel and what's going to be coming up in the Fenel too. Yeah, just um just more of a point on um more of a point on Krulia. Be interesting if you could put them in the RPL now and see where they would actually finish with this team. Because obviously, like Misha said, they've beaten three 
you know, three pretty decent RPL sides, you know, Dinamo, who are going for a top five finish. And, you know, they've also beaten Himke and Atmat, both solid mid-table teams. So they've beaten all three of those sides in the cup. So it'd be actually interesting to see if you put them, obviously, in a league. It's diff- A cup game is different to league. Obviously, the league is a grind where you can get yourself up for, you know, the league is a week-by-week grind, you know, and you're going to have peaks and troughs during the season, whereas the cup, you can get yourself up for one big game. But I actually do think that, yeah, if you put Krillia in the RPL right now, I think they'd probably finish ahead of the, the bottom four. You know, they, they with the squad that they have, they, they or it'd be very close at least. They they certainly look a lot better than Rotor and Ufa, and you know they look comfortably the equal of sorry Rotor and Tamboff, and they look comfortably the equal of Arsenal, Tula and Ufa at the minimum. So it does make you wonder. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued as well. Like, like Misha said, will will they continue on this attacking style in the in the RPL next season? Um, I said they look like they've mm-hmm. got a squad that's capable of making the step up already. So they might look to keep it together you know we often see a lot of sides who come up in any league in any country and they they sometimes some sides come up and change the side sometimes some sides come up and just make a few changes here and there I think Quilia are in the latter of that category they don't need to make a huge amount of changes they said so you know they, they, they're going to make signings obviously but rather than change you know nine ten eleven players in the summer they might only need to do four five six transfers and they can concentrate on quality rather than quantity because the HR Tanova kids, as we've said, who've been promoted there, have done really well in Sergeyev. I'm really fascinated to see how he does next season. Could could Russian football have a maybe a Jamie Vardy style player on their hands there? You know, a late bloomer because I think he's 25. So I think that would be absolutely fantastic if he if he could make mm-hmm. the, the step up. And Russian football needs as many good strikers as it can get at the moment because there's not a huge amount of them around. As you know, so yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated. I'm delighted for them as well. Like you said, Samara is a hotbed of football in Russia and. I think the locomotive game in the final might be a step too far for them, but they look pretty good to be securing promotion from the Feniel. They, they look like they're only two or three wins away from that. So if they can get that signed, sealed and done in the last few games of the Feniel season, they can you know, then rest players for the final. So I think locomotive will be a step too far, but just to get to the final, remarkable achievement from them, absolutely fantastic. And um, let's see if the goal machine, um, Sergeyev, can carry on scoring at the weekend when they play already doomed to relegation shinnick <laughs> that would be quite interesting but yeah just to um quickly come in um one last yeah about the feniel there is a huge game tomorrow probably as as big a game as a lot as a number of the games in the rpl this weekend and it is at, it is um the battle between second and third place in the league it's orenberg versus nishi novgorod and there are two points between them nishi in second at the minute orenberg in third the game is at orenberg's gasovic stadium and this pretty much is with the run-ins both sides have got from now to the end of the Feniel season. This is basically a promotion decider. Uh, whoever wins this probably will go up alongside Quilia from the Feniel. So um, it's a game I'll be tuning into tomorrow at 11am um, UK time, 12, 12 um, and noon Central European time and 1 um, Moscow St. Petersburg time. So yeah, that's a game to definitely watch in the RPL this week. Uh, sorry, in the Feniel this week. Uh, definitely the game of the week and mm-hmm. one of the games of the weekend in Russia full stop and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So if you're interested, it's 11am tomorrow in the UK for any of our listeners in the UK, 11am UK time on um, Sport Racks. And Mike, any last words for yourself on the on the on Krillia um, and the Cup semi-finals? I wanted to, to, to say some words about the cup final because we all have to, uh, we all understand that there's going to be a terrific pressure on uh, Lokomotiv. Anything but but win is going to be, um, well, a disaster. Nobody will understand how the, the FNL team 
uh, wins the cup. And this is uh, a huge advantage for, for Krylyev, uh, in my opinion, because um, the, um, this feeling that they can uh, make history, not only uh, as a, a second-tier team winning the National Cup, it has happened in Russia already, maybe a couple of times, but uh, winning the first major trophy in their history in, uh, in a game where they are not going to be um, considered as strong uh, favorites. They are just going to be underdogs. I think this might be an advantage for them. Uh, probably it's not professional, but I will support Crudy in the final, actually. I want to believe in this story. <laughs> I'm going to say that. They're going to be, be agreeing with that too. If anything, just to annoy Ilya, the local local fan which is always <laughs> always worth it now if we move on to the last topic of today which at first will be unfortunately a little bit of a monologue from myself for a little while where i cover all bases of the super league for now um now obviously everybody knows about the super league and what's been going on you don't need me to to get into much of that really but I will just discuss the Russian position, that of the RFU, the RPL, and a couple of experts. Now, the president of the RFU, Alexander Dukov, has claimed that uh, the RFU supports the position of UEFA and other European federations. The big part of his statement was that the idea contradicts the basic values of not only football, but the entire of the European community. The new tournament completely destroys the stable system of football development that has been developed over the years based on the quality and interests of all fans and members of the industry. It will jeopardise the prospects of national teams and their players, erase the long-term work of UEFA and FIFA. Now, before we get into the irony of the president of the RFU um, not liking the, the... the unstable system of football development that may exist, considering the RFU itself is overseeing an unstable system of footballing development. It's quite clear that the Chukov and the RFU as a body were vehemently against it. The RPL joined them in that position by, and the president, Sergei Pliadkin, said the RPL's in solidarity with the position of UEFA and European leagues, and it was the same statement, exactly the same word for word, basically, that the RFU released themselves. It was a joint statement, both in support of the opposition to the ESL and Alexander Seferin and the UEFA's position. The best statement that anybody released over the entirety of the debacle is actually Sochi CEO Dmitry Rubashko. And when Rubashko was asked about the European Super League, he said... I absolutely do not want to discuss this whatsoever. We have four rounds. We've got to climb the standings and solve our problems. This is not one of our problems, which is just absolutely brilliant because, look, I'm glad the RFU had a position. I'm glad the RPL had a position. But as I said, as I joke to the guys early pod, everyone listening, it's a little bit like a non-league English club saying that we don't want to join the Super League. Like, okay, fine. We know you're against it. Like, it's not going to happen anyway. But if this continued with lots of expert opinions, Yuri Siomin uh, heavily criticised it. He said football belongs to the fans. Nobody asked them about it. Not only the fans of these teams, but of the world. Twelve people cannot such a, solve such a serious issue. 
And there is no sporting principle here. This is not bad only just for Russia, but for for the rest. Once upon a time, Savina Zvezda played in the Champions League final. Anyone who was good can make it to the finals on sporting basis alone. And then Anatoly Bishevitz also spoke out against it, but you, you get the point. It's basically everybody who isn't in that 12, as is everybody with an ounce of footballing now, is completely against the unequalness and the, the breakaway nature of this competition. Now, I will quickly finish in saying that part of the Super League was to... Uh, part of this, this debacle while it was happening in the background, the UEFA had passed the new Champions League format, which is going to have uh, or would take place from 2024-25 season, um, with four additional slots reserved for top clubs at the moment as things stand. Um, a maximum quota from one top league will be six, and it'll operate on the Swiss system. The clubs will have ten matches, five at home, five away, no group stage. And the opponents are select based on similar results. Winners play winners, losers play losers, and, and so on, and, and down the table like that. After that, the first eight teams advance to the playoffs, while 9 to 24th have an extra round for reaching the quarterfinals. 25th to 36th are eliminated. So it's, it's quite a big change, and there's a lot of backlash against this. And I will finish that, as of today, the Spanish... Uh, newspaper and media conglomerate AS are reporting that the 12 clubs involved are actually set to avoid UEFA sh- sanctioned punishment in the immediacy uh, regarding kicking being kicked out of the UCL, that they will not be punished right now, but the UEFA are still considering longer term punishments. So after that long and monotonous and boring preamble of what's kind of went on in the Russian position, Richard, I just wanted to want to know what is your general thoughts on the European Super League? Well, first and foremost, I want to say that um, I was actually completely against the proposals, um, pretty much to, you know, to reiterate the position of the RFU. I've no doubt to reiterate all three of us' position on this is that I was completely against it um, on a sporting principles situation. And and ultimately, I, I got back into football. I follow me and you, James. We both follow third division, third tier sides in England. You know, it's a chance my side might never get to the, the English Premier League again. I know that Sunderland are six times champions of England in the past. There's a chance that you know they might not win another English title again. But there is still, whilst the current format exists, there is still that that dream is still on the table. Wigan Athletic might play in the Premier League again. Sunderland might win a championship or a trophy again. You know, in the in a major trophy again in the future, as long as that's that has to remain on the table for every single club in every single country's pyramid. I remember I watched Spanish football a lot. You know, I remember my first season following La Liga, Real Sociedad nearly won the league, and everybody cheered that on mercilessly. Like in Spain, I can imagine, except for Real Madrid supporters who eventually won the league instead of them. You know, and. Also, from the perspective of the top five European, the, the the leagues outside of Europe's top five as well, you know, the, the proposals on the table for that Super League when they said we need more games between the sides, you know, the the big sides of Europe, um, they, they it almost in a way that it, it almost gave the arrogant sense that well they are the only sides that can create the memories. Well, I bring to you Leicester. 2015-16, memorable English title win, near relegation the season before, title win the season after. Something truly remarkable. Montpellier winning Ligue 1 in France in 2011-12. Um, why I'm 
I'm speaking on this podcast right now is purely because what motivated me to really get in touch with you guys and write for Russian football news, Rostov, nearly relegated in 2014-15, nearly became Leicester City's, the Leicester City of Russia in 2015-16. Everybody apart from Suska fans were cheering Rostov to win the league that season. It was such a shame that they didn't manage to do it. But that is what the beauty of sport is, that the underdog has a chance. And some of my memories in the Champions League, you know, Mourinho's Porto side, uh, Rebrov and Shevchenko getting to the semi-finals with Dinamo Kiev in 1998-1999. Both, that really launched both of their careers, especially Shevchenko. Um, situations like Apoel Nicosia getting to the quarterfinals of the Champions League in 2011-12 as a Cypriot team. There's been other sides as well. Leonard Slutsky, you know, making an impression in 2019-2010 with Sascar getting into the quarterfinals. Ajax a couple of years ago when they just missed out on the, you know, the the final of the Champions League. Some of the most memorable moments from the Champions League has been from non-Big Five League teams. And, you know, these 12 clubs had the audacity to say to everybody else, both in their own pyramids and outside of the top five leagues, we are basically trying to take that away from you. I think it was it was outrageous. And I'm I'm just really disappointed in them. And I'm so happy that the football community everywhere pulled together to make sure it was stopped. I was really happy that the German Bundesliga sides and PSG also took a firm stance against this. Um, and I'm really happy also that fans of those clubs came together with an almost unanimous disapproval of it and put the proposal to bed full stop. Well, maybe not full stop, but for the time being, it's definitely off the table. Um, and I was I was really encouraged to see the, the unified response against this. Now, look, UEFA's proposals are not great either. I still think they're very disproportionate against the non-Big Five leagues. I'm still not a fan of this potential for wild cards and this Swiss system style where it's going to be 10 group games, which now actually puts pressure on the, the, the league system in England because it might mean the end of the English league, the English EFL League Cup. Um, so I'm not a fan of that. And I think already in football, it's getting a bit oversaturated with the amount of games that we are playing. I'd rather see fewer games of more quality rather than more games of less quality. So, and UEFA have got a lot to answer for from some, some other for situations that they've had in the in the past. However, at the end of the day, this was, the UEFA proposal is still the lesser of two evils compared to what the Super League was. However, that should not stop the clubs, federations and, and, and individuals in the game, you know, now starting to say to UEFA, right, okay, this proposal that you've got isn't great either. And I have actually heard reports that UEFA might even now be considering, you know, removing the wildcard aspect of it for, you know, coefficient teams qualifying for the Champions League based on past performance if they don't qualify for the league. I have heard that could be off the table. So hopefully there'll be some pressure on that because I think that is disproportionate too. I think that is against the very principle of qualifying through merit from it for the Champions League through the league. So hopefully, yes, there's a lot of reform that UEFA do need to do. They need to sharpen up their act on certain things, but I am on their side in this because I think this Super League proposal was absolutely ridiculous and I'm very glad it was shot down by mm-hmm. loads of people in the football community as we can agree on, as millions of others around the world can agree on too. I One thing that's really not sat well with me is the reaction to Sky Sports and UEFA after the fact that they are almost saviors of the game and that's not true yes they are on the fan side in this matter 
but they haven't been for the 20 years before and they probably won't be for the next 10 or whatever, however long it is until this happens again. They're only on our side because they're out of pocket. UEFA, if only UEFA did as much of battling corruption in UEFA, then they have a battling potential loss of revenue, then football would be a better sport worldwide, without a shadow of a doubt. If this is something, though, that allows the fans, football fans and regular people around the world to develop somewhat of a class consciousness, then great, finally. Finally, football fans are doing that, finally realising that people are stronger together. And we've held the Super League to account. Well, next will be Sky Sports, hopefully. After that, UEFA, they need to be held to account as well for what they've done. But right now, they're on our side and the Super League is the big bad guy. Now, their proposals are nothing short than despicable in my eyes. And from a Russian perspective, a Russian football perspective, two dates really stick in my mind. 26th of September 1995 and the 20th of October 2009. On the first one in 1995, uh, Rotter Volgograd travelled to Old Trafford and drew with Man United to all and defeated them in away goals. In 2009, Ruben Gazan pulled off in what is my eyes the greatest giant killing in Champions League history, defeating Barcelona. 2-1 at the camp now, thanks to a wonderful winner from Gokdenes Karadenes. If they had got their way, that would never exist. It's not about money. It's not about it is, but it's not about the big teams playing each other. It's not about that at all. It's about them stopping this. It's about them keeping their status quo. Florentino Perez is an out-of-touch septuagenarian trying to tell generations younger than even we all are how to think about football and how they think about football I'm not surprised that they were insulted by his comments I'm not surprised that we're all disgusted and everybody across the world was disgusted by the nature of their proposals and equally not surprised that it happened and it will happen again and they've tried it before but anyway I'll get off my soapbox (laughs) Misha, what were your general thoughts on the Super League and how could it potentially have affected Russia? Um, well, it, it, it's very hard to say. You know, I don't think that it would uh, influence Russian football um, somehow. Uh, just to add um, what, what, small, uh, small, small memory from myself, it was 1998. The Russian economy collapsed in August. Uh, the uh, the the rate of the Russian ruble um, fell down three times in a, in a couple of weeks, so it was a complete disaster. The, the 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 economy was ruined, and in September, maybe October that year, Real Madrid with um, uh, Gus Hiddink as the head coach. Uh, arrived to Moscow to play the Champions League and Spartak defeated them 2-1 in the 84,000 uh, attendance at Luzhniki. This was, it was, that was something absolutely incredible. It didn't help the economy, but it was, well, I don't know how to, how to explain that. That was um, such a relief for maybe a couple of days for people just to, uh, it didn't solve the problems, but it was the uh, the fresh air that we all needed. And imagine that 
this is not going to happen ever. Well, this is just ridiculous. I, I've had some um, com- somebody trying to compare the players of the Super League and the Northern American leagues. I don't think that it's the, the right comparison because the Northern American leagues in baseball, in uh, basketball, in uh, uh, hockey, NHL, and all the rest leagues, they are f- were founded around th- some clubs. So the system had not changed there. They expanded their leagues, but it, they did not break. Uh, they, had not, uh, they, they didn't have to break something that had existed before them. And in Europe, this is what was going to happen. The, the, the idea, the, the, the most um, loud uh, voice and the most significant point that they are raising, that they want to have more money because they are top clubs, they create uh, the content that everybody is uh, watching and so they want their huge uh, share. Well, okay, I don't buy it. You are, you're not that poor. Uh, you're not that struggling. Uh, maybe you just try uh, some some other ways to uh, to overcome your financial problem. Well, I don't believe them. I don't. But this is the, those tears are crocodile tears. I don't believe them at all. Um, yeah. If we talk about Russia, the only thing how it touches us, I think. Well, I've got. It's it's weird for me to hear any comments from from Russian football bodies, you know, because we are somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Mars <laughs> is closer to the Super League than than, than Russian teams right now. So w- what are we talking about? How can we be offended by that? Only if yeah. the Champions League uh, does not exist anymore uh, in the way that it had existed uh, previous years, and the prize money. Uh, a cut and that's how russian teams might be affected but if we look at the qualification of the russian teams to the playoffs in the european caps of the previous two seasons we will find only one team qualifying to the uh, round of uh, 16 in uh, uh, europa league it was krasnodar this year previous year we had zero teams qualifying so i think that we have somewhere on the periphery of the uh, of this um, of these events so it it, it it you know it made me laugh when I had Russian uh, very uh, staunch position that we are against that we don't like that yeah okay how can, how can we be uh, offended here anyway well okay but we had we had to say something. We had to see. They had, uh, we had to say something yeah. because the, the head of the Russian Football Union is a political figure, and he has to say something. But uh, by the way, I think uh, this idea has been put on ice. I don't think that it's buried completely. I think that they will. Mm-hmm. They just tested the um, how do you say it in English? Uh, t- tested the waters. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm afraid they're gonna be back with that idea maybe a couple of years later. Absolutely. They're definitely not backing down. I think it was telling in the statements of those clubs who withdrew that they either totally refused to apologise or totally refused to admit any or accept any accountability for it. Um, Some of them said that they are leaving, but none of them said that it's ending. Most of them didn't even address their fans. They called them stakeholders. 
Barcelona has called them customers and said they literally said that their fans are customers and that they will continue to explore avenues for the Super League in the future, just not right now. It it baffles the mind just how how insensitive these people are and how bad at reading the room they are. I mean, it baffles the mind, but that's that's exactly the type of person they are. I suppose it's not that surprising. But yeah, I agree. The only way it could have affected Russia is is negative consequence. Um. I don't think any of the clubs would be invited. I think the only one who could one day would probably be Zenit. And I think it would be probably related more so because of a, a sympathy where it's, ah, we will let them in one year just so Russia can have their one year or something like that. It, it would be patronising why they'd be invited. But even if they are, why? how would they benefit? I mean, look, the... Russia will no longer see the strongest teams, or if you do, it would be un- unbelievably imbalanced. All sponsorship would go to the level above. The Champions League, as you said, Misha, would just cr- crumble. And none of the Russian clubs would either, like in theory, when they played there, would either they would either lose constantly and be the whipping boys of the league, or would have to spend such an inordinate amount of money to even get anywhere near a level playing field that it wouldn't be worth it. I mean, imagine if Zenit just theoretically or hypothetically did get chosen for a Super League and then went into the Super League with an eight-man squad limit for foreigners in place. They'd get tonked week in, week out by all of them. There'd just be no benefit whatsoever for them. So, it, yeah, the RFU kind of had to say something. I mean, they even pulled out Lebedev from the from the, from the the cupboard and, and said, there you go, have your monthly little word matter on their word on the matter and then stop talking again. Richard, any last words from yourself on the Super League and how it might affect Russia and so on? Yeah, it's interesting how um I actually agree with Misha. I think I don't actually think this is done yet. And the telling I, I listen to I actually follow a lot of Spanish and Italian football and I listen to a few Spanish football podcasts and there it has been the reaction and you know there's still, you know, Laporta still mentioning that, you know, this is on the table and you, you've only seen Florentino Perez's remarks on Spanish radio and television recently. And, um, you know, I, I, and I have seen as well online, judging from the, you know, I, I click on a lot of things on Twitter and I have seen much more opposition to this from the six English clubs involved and their fan bases compared to the three Spanish clubs and the three Italian clubs. I think there is that sense in, in Spain and in Italy from, you know, Juventus, Real Madrid, Barcelona supporters that, you know, they're much in a much, they probably would find the idea. And don't get me wrong. I think this idea, I think the idea of the Super League is absolutely abhorrent. And, you know, I'm completely a hundred percent against it. I never want to see anything like this attempted ever again, but you do get the impression that they a decent chunk of their fan base do actually want to play more games against the big English teams rather than the smaller teams in their country. And it is, it is sad and regrettable that that is the case. Um, you know, I, I saw some figures for La Liga's television distribution uh, recently and um, Sevilla only six points off La Liga's um, leaders, Atletico, with five games to go. They've got an outside chance of, of winning La Liga this season for the first time since 1946. Apparently, Sevilla earn less than one third of Real Madrid and Barcelona's television income for the 2019-20 season. Yet they're up there, competing with them. 
you know, and that that just shows you, doesn't it? That and and to be fair to the Spanish Federation, they have tried in recent years to to you know the gap used to be bigger, uh, larger. Sorry, in terms of the money that Real Madrid and Barca compared to the others get, you know, they have evened it out a bit more in recent years. Even though in England it's still a lot more even than in Spain, and there's still a lot of work to do. So, um, but yeah, it, it's just it's pure arrogance. And, and okay, I've seen a lot of people. I've seen quite a number of people saying about the Super League, well, UEFA is, you know, it's it's not, you know, look at the situation in UEFA at the moment, look at these reforms, this is why we have to do this. Well, yes, nobody is saying that the situation in UEFA is perfect at the moment. You know, everybody knows that there is an awful lot of scrutiny that should still be placed on UEFA. There is still an awful, they've, they've got a lot of things that they've done poorly in the past and they've, they're still doing poorly now. They've given too much power to the big teams before, too much bias towards the top five leagues. They've not really catered for the other leagues in Europe. So nobody's saying that there's not issues at UEFA, but to allow 12 teams to take control of football and create basically create their own cabal is just totally wrong as well. You know, and Two wrongs do not make a right. Just because UEFA have been poorly... Uh, poor, done poorly doing things in the past doesn't mean this gives an excuse for this power grab, you know. And we, we in our work at RFN, we, we've uh, uh, RFN, we've obviously branched out recently to fellow fellow um, podcasters who, who cover other, you know, non Big Five leagues, and it's it's fantastic, um, you know, covering these leagues for for people who might not have that much knowledge outside of you know the top five European leagues or even football just in the league in the country that they're, that they're from. You know, they follow a big five league. So, you know, it's good to branch out and all all of us do a lot of good hard work in promoting these leagues to people and to see them, you know, potentially taken away from us with this closed shop system is just, it's just a complete and utter nonsense. And, you know, um, like I say, some of the memories that Misha mentioned there about that, um, about that Spartak victory over Real Madrid, my first memory of Russian football was Spartak beating Arsenal 4-1 in Moscow. You know, I, and in 2000, I remember that game. I think Robson, uh, Yegor Titov scored. That that was the first memory of Russian football that I got, you know, and it, it really got me interested in leagues outside of, you know, the, the Premier League. You know, it, it cannot be taken away from people. And, you know, the attitude of the American owners at um, at Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal and at, from people like, you know, Perez and people like Agnelli, it's just, it's absurd. It's it's ridiculous. And But sadly, like like Misha said, I, I, I really don't think it's off the table, unfortunately. And I think this might be back on the table in a few years. I really hope it's not. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting couple of, um, the fallout from this will be quite interesting, that's for sure. You can almost guarantee it, it, it will be back on the table, especially with a snake like Florentino Perez in charge of it. And Misha, any last words from yourself on the on the Super League debacle? You know, I wanted to ask a question, uh, you guys, because the, the the Super League has been uh, was destroyed by the by the wave of the uh, English fans who protested, who went to the streets, who um, gathered around the stadiums, and they said there no uh do you expect that uh, some uh ceo is gonna step down that's gonna that this wave that this uh victory over the super league is going to lead to some changes in the um in the in the managing bodies of the uh, of the english clubs do you think personally i mean well ed woodward has already 
stood yes. down from Manchester United. There's been a lot of which pressure is... on uh, Arsenal CEO at the moment, Coenke, right? Yeah, it, it's there's rumours that they will be forced to. Um, I mean, Abramovich and Sheikh Mansur are their own separate entities because their clubs are their own little fiefdom. But there's rumours that obviously because Manchester United are shared on the stock market that the Glazers are willing to sell and are are willing are looking for offers now to get out of Manchester United. Um, I think the position for a lot of these CEOs in these clubs is now personally untenable. They cannot continue in those roles as far as I'm concerned. The problem is, is I'm not quite sure they either see that or will accept that themselves. I think from my perspective that this Premier League in as a more wider point on the Premier League. I think it's it's a bubble that is inevitably going to crash at some point. And unfortunately, those clubs who will be hit hardest will be the ones that, like myself and Richard support, who are not in the Premier League. Uh, the turnover of wages, the, the, pro- the percentage of wages according to turnover in the Championship is disgraceful. Reading released their accounts last week and it's 217%. You've got Clubs below that in League One, Sunderland are luckily quite financially solvent with a new rich owner. Wigan, of course, have now just been taken over, luckily. But Wigan themselves were on the brink of liquidation for a best part of a year to 18 months. There are clubs in England now, like Gillingham, Wimbledon, who have to play their matches at lunchtime in the United Kingdom, be it at 12 o'clock midday BST, because... They can't play them any later because they can't afford to turn the floodlights on at night. They literally they have that little amount of cash in their coffers and that high a cash flow problem. I think there will be a bubble break at some point in the Premier League. I thought this might have been it if these clubs got kicked out or whatever. I just think those at the top won't suffer from it. If there will be something as a longer-term consequence of this... Hopefully it is Woodward and Kroenke and John Henry and all them taken away from the game because their fans despise them. The, the, the people that they are there serving hate them. Football owners may own football clubs in name, but they will never own the soul of a football club. They are nothing but custodians. They are only there to take after the club and look after the club for the fans. I mentioned Fadoon earlier. He is... The man in charge of all things Spartak, he he sees it as his, his own personal entity. Technically, yes, he's not wrong. Possession is nine-tenths of the law and so on. He owns Spartak, but he will only forever be the custodian of Spartak. As with Yevgeny Muller in Gazprom, these clubs are the fans. The clubs will be around longer than the individual. And I hope that some of these men in these positions, like Perez in Spain, Laporte, Kroenke, Woody Wood has obviously already went. He was the most under fire of the lot. It must go. They cannot last any longer. Richard, what do you think? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I saw yesterday that, you know, there was actually a protest at Manchester United's training ground in Carrington. Now, there's been discontent with the Glazers before, but I have literally, in the 
how long has it been now? 16 years since the Glazers took over Manchester United. That That is the highest level of protest I've seen, you know, to actually go in. There's been protests outside of Old Trafford before, but never in the training ground. You know, they, they got into the training ground and, you know, Solskjaer and the players peacefully remonstrated with them and then the police came and they told them to leave and they did they did politely go but that just shows you the level of you know the fans yes they shouldn't have invaded the training ground obviously they, they broke a rule doing that but they did nothing wrong they when they were there you know and when they were told to back down they did but it, at least it showed the that the fans now are willing now are, this has really touched a nerve with people and I've, just before we came on here tonight the podcast Arsenal playing Everton in the Premier League and outside of the Emirates there was big anti-Stan Kroenke protests so I, th- I definitely think this has touched a nerve now and it's and it is interesting now as well how talk of the 50 plus one rule that is in place in German football is now being talked about in England you have the British sports minister Oliver Dowden now has promised a fan review and you know and that obviously shows that the government is getting involved now with it in terms of regu- in terms of appointing an independent regulator so I think this has touched a nerve now I think in England and um, it would be very interesting to see what happens going forward and um you know, I, I think the other 17 clubs in Italy and Spain as well will be very disappointed with the positions that Perez and Agnelli have taken in this. You know, and I certainly, you know, you know, the other clubs in Spain, like Abar, for example, Sevilla have managed to, you know, maintain a very low level of debt and sell to buy, build themselves up that way. Abar have no debts whatsoever and still no debt, apparently, despite, you know, refurbishing the stadium for the... Um, for the when they got promoted to the Spanish top flight, Sassuolo are a very well-run club in Italy. These guys will be looking at people like Perez and Agnelli and their actions and thinking, "Sorry, guys, you're, these actions are just absolutely despicable. What about us? We're building a club. You guys have, you know, spent money poorly on players, and now you know you're complaining about having a Super League. It's, you know, but I do definitely think in England, yes, that the, the protests certainly touched, have touched a nerve recently. And like I say, that, that, that um, protest at the Man United training ground, that is definitely the strongest indication yet of protest against the Glazers. And this one tonight at um, the Emirates, I was looking at the pictures before our podcast and it was a lot of people were there at the Emirates tonight. So I think this has certainly touched the nerve and it's going to be a fascinating next year or so in terms of what happens from the fallout of this European Super League debacle. Yeah, I think the 50 plus one rule is an interesting interesting development, especially in England. In England. We've never seen much like that in these, in, in, on these shores and especially not at the highest level. It's often at a lower level when fans come in to save a club. Portsmouth did it. Um, AFC Wimbledon famously broke apart and started again when MK Dons were moved old Wimbledon were moved to Milton Keynes and became MK Dons but at the highest level, at the elite level that's very very rarely been seen I don't think ever if I remember correctly and the 50 plus 1 rule has in Germany has its drawbacks um, it's easy to circumvent with the shares of companies and giving those shares to company holders, I think uh, Bayer, the owners of Bayer Leverkusen, their company men hold most of the shares. And it's a, it's a little bit of a, a weird dodge around the subject. Hoffenheim, there's question marks over how they fulfill the 50 plus one. Obviously, the big one is RB, or Rasenballsport Leipzig, RB Leipzig, um, formerly SV Machrenstadt, who were bought out by Red Bull, completely disenfranchised, changed, moved, history rewritten. And 
they got to the Bundesliga on the back of a phony fulfillment of the 50 plus one. I think it's a ridiculous number. I can't remember the top of my head, but I believe it's either in single or double figures, the number of overall shareholders of RB Leipzig. And yes, it is 50 plus one, but that 50 plus one is actually high level employees within Red Bull, which it's a, a pretty disgraceful way of circumventing the rule. And, that's where it's not perfect. There are worries in Germany that the 50 plus one rule holds back their game at the elite level, especially compared to the the amounts of money that's pushed around in Europe, um, particularly in England, ironically. But I do think that the 50 plus one rule is something that would work in England because of the mass interest by the fans of being involved at that level. There's more fan interaction in England than anywhere else in the world right now, I believe. It was a Reuters article last year that, that investigated it, and that means supporters' trusts, um, supporters' uh, liaison and, and with their owners. Just my own club, we have a trust who is membership-based. Anyone can buy into it and support it, who have six to seven meetings with the ownership a year who have access to the ground whenever they want, whenever they request it, because our owners and our new owners in particular really do understand that we are the we are the owners of the football club in anything but actual name. Um, they are the custodians. And that is something that a lot of owners would be amenable to. I'm not quite sure, however, if it would work in Russia, purely because, not to say that the passion isn't there, I think the passion is there from the core fans. I worry about the financial stability of being able to do so, a 50 plus one. There is, especially at the lower clubs, those who are regionally involved, a lot of clubs, say Tambov, for example, I mean, look at Florentino Perez crying in the river about Real Madrid's financial problems. Somebody take him to Tambov and show him what theirs are like. They are, or were 100% regionally owned. Now they are a mixture of slight regional with a new private investment that came in this season. Um, as soon as fans are involved and they would say, for example, create that 50 plus one with Tambov, then that regional investment once gone, they're desperate to get rid. Most regional governments are absolutely desperate. The Primorsky cry down in Amkar PM were desperate to get rid of Amkar at one point. They've restarted them again now. And thankfully Amkar aren't dead anymore. But as soon as they could, they just shot them off. It won't. It wouldn't be a fifty plus one of fans and a forty nine of regional government. It would. They would be desperate for the fans to get that other forty nine, and I, I worry about that financial stability. Uh, uh, what do you think, Michelle? Is a, a very final point on the Super League. Do you think that a fifty plus one rule could work in Russian football? Um, well, if we had enough um, uh, private uh, private companies to sponsor football, I think it might. But uh, truth be told, I don't believe it. I don't believe it in Russia nowadays because it's not just the the financial regulation. It's uh, the uh, the whole economy, the whole um, system of of the country working all together. And in uh, in the circumstances that we have in Russia right now, I don't believe it because it's not a business here yet. I hope it's going to become one, but not in the perspective of the maybe five or ten years upcoming. So I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit uh, pessimistic about it. I think Russia right now, in terms of structural issues, have got 
far bigger issues on their hand. If you took the old Soviet system and renamed it, it's largely the same, but the sporting society's system has, for a lot of the clubs, especially for a lot of the small regional governments, still exists in exactly the same way. The, the regional government who own SCAR are the former employees of the of the former uh, army sporting society, the sister club of the old Siska Moscow back at Moscow back in the day. Because of that, because of this Soviet hangover that exists behind the scenes, and it's it's getting better every year. It is getting better. There's more financial, fi- private, and financial investment. The academy structure is blossoming more and more each year, especially from uh, the private Togliati Academy to done done in the south in Samara. Um, just outside Samara, sorry. The Krasnodar Academy, the the blossoming uh, Chitanova, it's it is getting better. But I believe that there's too many echoes of the old Soviet system that still exists behind the scenes in Russia for them to be able to create the fifty plus one right now. They need to sort out their own structural issues, chiefly academies, privatization. And more so than anything, sponsorship money, and really putting these clubs in a solid financial setting to be able to compete. I discussed the Russian league with some English friends recently who, without patronizing them, don't have a clue about football in Russia. And they couldn't quite believe just how many professional football clubs in this country go out of business every year. They they, they found it unbelievable that the sheer amount of clubs that just cease to exist because of the financial instability. And unfortunately, with that, we'll reach the end of this week's pod because we have run quite a bit over. Now, luckily, the European Super League lasted even less time than the average time a sporting director does under Leonid Fadun at Spartak, and it is hopefully dead in the water, or at least on ice for now. But as always, the RPL does continue as normal. There's a Moscow derby on Sunday, Spartak or Siska. But in my mind, the two biggest games are arguably at the bottom of the table. There's Ufa or Sochi, and Arsenal travels to Rostov. As the pair look to continue their good form of late and pull themselves away from the automatic relegation places. There's a little bit of slightly breaking news. Um, as of recording, just earlier today, it was announced that St. Petersburg has been granted an extra three UEFA Euro 2020 matches. They will now host seven games in the city which includes Belgium-Russia, Poland-Slovakia, Finland-Russia, Sweden-Slovakia, Finland-Belgium, Sweden-Poland, and a quarter-final match. Now, they were given three extra games because Dublin is unable to to fulfil the duties as a whole city anymore due to the COVID outbreak and certain lockdown rules that are still in place. Richard, thank you for joining me. Pleasure as always, James. And Misha, thank you very much. Where can all the listeners find yourself on social media and, and listen to your podcasts online? I have an uh, Instagram account and a Twitter account. My uh, podcast is in Russian. It's called The The Sounds of Football. I don't know. Well, I don't think that's a huge, um, huge part of our audience is going to, to listen to it. But well, if, you, if you want to to uh to expand your knowledge in russian you're welcome yeah and if, if any of those who are listening from russia and you probably already know anyway but anyone who speaks fluent russian i'll, I'll link it all down below okay we'll be back at the usual time next week until then 
This has been the RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Веди его, беги, точнее его удар Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок Здесь нужны тренировка и воля Быстрота, увлечение, расчет